Welcome to Regulate Tech. Uh, this is our 20th episode of 2022, in which we're going to look at the end of the year with me, Nicholas Baird Lumblad, and with me, Richard Allen. Excellent. So, Richard, uh, when we think back at 2022, and there's still a full month you know, left where things can go horribly wrong, but if we think back at it, I think one of the things we can agree on is it was a year characterized by catastrophe, by sort of yeah. massive events that, that were both unexpected and quite disruptive. It starts with a war, doesn't it? The, the war right. in Ukraine. February, Russia invades Ukraine, and, uh, and that's in a sense sort of dominated all, all of our lives for the rest of the year. Um, yeah. Obviously, particularly for people in the region who are directly oh, affected, totally, yeah. but through the energy crisis that's been provoked, through that sense of un- unease and uncertainty that I think we all have. I don't know about you, but I, saw, I was brought up in the shadow of the fear of the nuclear war and the end no, of the Cold too. War. Me too. We had exercises where we ran down into shelters. and yeah. exactly. In Sweden, you were even <laughs> closer yeah. uh, than I was in the UK. So, yeah, so that, that, that um, sort of sense of dread and threat, I think, you know, is really unusual and is back in the game. It's almost like a, it is. It's a, a sort of de- depressing dark cloud hanging over us. If... if uh, 2021 was this sort of emerging from COVID, lots of hopeful signs, particularly in the tech sector, you were, you know, you're, you're having the sort of booming businesses and this sense of the world reconnecting. And then 2022, it's become very gloomy and, and nothing could be more significant than a war, a conflict, a real conflict where thousands of people are getting killed. Yeah, and we're, we're in the situation where we have state of emergency after state of emergency mm. following on each other. And now it's sort of it's all entwined into one emerging, slowly evolving catastrophe. So if you think about the, the Russian war and you start to think about tech policy, one of the things that really stood out to me was the speed with which governments, especially in Europe and the US, decided, for example, to block, block Russian content. And yeah. and just decided that wasn't wasn't a discussion anymore. They were not having the propaganda, and they they treated it with the same kind of, of state of emergency mentality that you would have expected in war. And I think that's something that has made swift political action in some ways much more common than we yes. saw it before. Yeah, I think it's a shift from. I mean, we've been watching globalization, a sense sort of unraveling. There was the backlash against globalization over really since the two thousand eight financial crisis, and that there's been this sort of backlash, but it hadn't to date really affected media and and speech. So media was still a global uh, effort, and people were not actively blocking each other's media outlets, and that's I think the thing that's changed this year. That apart from China, I mean, you had you had sort of China and Iran and a couple of other countries as standout examples. But then rest of world, pretty much anywhere, you could get everybody's media. <laughs> and, and the internet was facilitating that. And so it didn't matter where you live in the world, channels like RT, Al Jazeera, the BBC's obviously been doing this for years with radio, but these, these uh, Child France 24, like everybody was creating these media outlets that were going to go global and use the internet to get global reach. And that hadn't really been interfered with, I think, in any meaningful way, I say, apart from these few islands, until this year, where suddenly, very, very dramatically and very rapidly, people were saying, no, RT, the Russian channel, we're going to block it, and then the Russians are going to retaliate. And I think now we're seeing a sort of unravelling of the global media market more quickly than, than than I certainly expected and has happened before. And of the global internet as well. This notion yes. of the internet connecting across borders, etc., is is in some sense now truly buried because we've seen that the internet is a national phenomenon that can be regulated nationally, closed down nationally. And we've also seen the exodus of many internet companies from Russia. That's right. And when it becomes a sort of national security, well, it's national security and a sanctions issue. So we would, we have that in the companies we used to work for. You're always aware of sanctions. But again, sanctions were very limited and very targeted. You knew that you couldn't, if you're an American company, for example, do business with people in Cuba or Iran or a few other spots around the world. But it wasn't mainstream. I mean, the internet companies were still doing lots of business with Russia. It's a, it a big part of the market. Russian Russian developers were using the US platforms to get out to market. Uh, Russian politicians would engage, you would engage with them as tech company yeah. policy people. You go to events there. Uh, and suddenly that's all, all stopped. And it's now seen as a, a, almost sort of... A, uh, unpatriotic and and damaging to your country's security interest to engage too far in Russia. Uh, some companies 
formally because the sanctions have had to disengage, but others just because of the mood and the public pressure have disengaged. I personally have a lot of sympathy with that. I think the, yeah. you know, you know, it's the right thing to do to disengage given that the scale of the offence has been committed by the <clears throat> Russian regime against its neighbour. Absolutely. And, and it's, but it is, it is interesting that we've talked about the splinter net for a long time, but now we've yeah. seen it really have that uh, effect. Uh, and, and, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. I think what we've seen during 2022 will reverberate through the next couple of decades. I think that the kind of splinter net that has now emerged is unlikely to to disappear in in the next in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think as long as the tension is there, and as long as you have these computers, it's interesting as wherever there is political tension. Uh, so arguably, I mean, on a very different scale, but certainly the Brexit experience was similar in a way that once the UK has said we want to disengage, that disengagement will extend to things like the internet. Um, mm. So the more that you know, and, and there's now this sort of new talk about being more hostile to China. And again, we have to remember a lot of Chinese businesses are doing business through the US slash global platform. So when you're mm. on Amazon, look at how many of the people that you know you're buying from are in China. Now, if that becomes a frostier relationship, you're right, it has a splinter net effect. So so we're seeing the the shape of the internet reflecting the shape of global politics. Yes. And God help us if there's a you know conflict around Taiwan, <clears throat> for example. That, that's going to, again, have a dramatic effect on... on uh, the internet is going to realign along national security lines yes. uh, into a different kind of blocking arrangement. As will the entire IT fueled economy because of the uh, semiconductor issue, uh, yeah. where most of the semiconductors are produced in some way or fashion through Taiwan, for example, as detailed in a, in a recent book called Ship War that yeah. I can absolutely recommend. Now... We we the, the the word catastrophe means sort of turning around. There's like a turning around of some kind, and and we don't, to your point earlier, um, think that you can compare the war in Ukraine with any other turning around. But but the, there are other turning arounds, and one of the turning arounds, uh, the catacresis that we've seen is is the uh, tech companies falling in terms of their stock value. Uh, we've seen layoffs. We've seen massive um, uh, packages being launched as to how they will restructure and and sort of just to cap this off, we also saw the Twitter takeover by Elon Musk. So the tech industry is also in one of these turning arounds, right? Yeah, it's, it's being convulsed. And we, we've seen this previously. I mean, it, it, um, it's, it's kind of curious that people somehow think that the tech world is in stasis when, when you know, for two or three years you've seen sort of growth of particular companies it's not and that's not sort of accurately reflecting just how much you know the public actually uh, moves on yeah. and they make different choices and the economy moves on and advertisers move on and so you just see this it, it is still a very innovative space where people are looking for for innovation novelty yeah. uh, and so it, it's almost built into it is that turning over i think into the tech space and people try hard to corner a segment and i think they can again the examples often cited and i think is a good one is apple apple sort of cornered a segment not everything but a, a decent chunk and is able to to really hang on to that yeah. uh, but even they at some point you know apple became cool <laughs> and yeah. they drove down microsoft microsoft back up again but you know you see this sort of constant toing and froing uh, um, and there's no reason to think that won't happen again so, so if it's a big enough market and it's tech and the barriers of entry are not too great then that's such a fat prize <laughs> that yeah. someone is going to come in you know there's no way that people are going to sit there and go like oh facebook you know meta uh, instagram you you keep all the advertising dollars yeah it's fine you know they were going to come and build tiktok and they were going to come and build other services to come and get a slice of that money because it's too big and fat a prize yes and if you look at the sort of the turnaround in in tech it's interesting to think about whether or not that's something that's going to last over the coming years, or if we're going to see a rebound. Do you think? Do you think there's any company that uh, we that won't be around in ten years that we've seen sort of 
that we've seen stumble and fall and, and potentially will be out of the game? Or do you think that we have a tendency to exaggerate the nature of the turnaround? Because, I mean, take, take Facebook, for example. The layoffs at Facebook, while in many ways tragic, and especially for the individuals involved, uh, they brought the company back to um, uh, a level I think they had in December 2021. Yeah. So it was essentially one year's worth of hiring Sorry. that they raised. It wasn't, it wasn't going back to 2000 and. Mm. 14 or whatever it was it was it was if you look at it they, it's a lost year if you will but do you think there are things that has happened in the tech sector and it doesn't need just to be the big ones that will be uh permanent changes I, mean, I think we should go back to this like core question which is have you got a product that enough people are willing to pay enough money for for it to be sustainable over the long term. That's like always the sort of fundamental question. I think you only see a failure where that ceases to be the case, where users flee a product or they never go into the market. And so at the moment, you have to look again, the meta services are still hugely popular, 3 billion people. Uh, and, you know, advertising dollars are being squeezed, but they've not gone away altogether. No. And so I think you can look at that and say, well, that's still a very viable business. You'd have to lose a lot more users or advertisers and or advertisers to make that unsustainable. Where there's a bigger question for Meta is obviously over their new product line, uh, which is the Metaverse uh, type experience, and whether or not that has got the same viable business model. Are there enough people willing to pay enough money to make a service which is good and profitable? Uh, and that's where the jury is out, and that's obviously what's particularly hit the... the meta company stock price but i think their core services whatsapp facebook instagram you know there's a long way to go <laughs> before those cease to be you know, profitable businesses just given the scale of usage and and they're valued by people people yeah. still find them incredibly valuable and i find it interesting because i think meta is the only company i can think of that's making a bet on something that it thinks will be the next new thing Whereas a lot of companies still end up being quite defensive uh, about the existing products they have that people love and like. So there, there is something worth taking that risk that, of course, of course, also puts you out on a ledge. Because if the risk is, you know, realized, if, you're, if your bet is wrong and you lose it, then you might have overcommitted and, and then the whole thing can fall apart. Yeah. So wh why do you think that that's, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. You see it with Meta. I think that another kind of bet that we're seeing is the bet that Elon Musk is making with Twitter. It's harder to decipher exactly what that bet is, but we should talk about it. Yeah. But, but it, yeah. if you look at the Microsoft, for example, they're not making a, a huge, well, possibly, perhaps yeah. the Activision acquisition is a bit of a bet of moving into entertainment, but it's more, it's more incremental business as usual with Microsoft than the insistence on Metaverse being the next big thing that we see from, yeah. from uh, Meta. I mean, I think what they've done is they've put their bet their side bet front and center by literally renaming the company after it so the other companies do make these bets but they're quieter bets so i think you know snap is betting on augmented reality yeah. and they've got a whole sort of glasses experience there but but it's not necessarily as front and center you don't they've not renamed the company augment <laughs> they've, they still snap and that's the one we associate with microsoft has made huge bets on going to cloud computing actually made a huge bet on search with bing yeah. uh which Again, has not been dramatically successful, but we still associate Microsoft with Windows and Office products. Uh, uh, interestingly, Google kind of made the nondescript bet by becoming Alphabet, didn't they? Which is sort of everything. Lots of bets. Yeah, lots, of bets. lots of bets. Yes. Bets on self-driving cars, all sorts of stuff. So everyone's making bets. I think the difference with Meta is they've kind of gone, they've pinned their colours to the mass, they've gone all in. Yeah. It's like in poker. When you go all in, throw all your chips in the middle of the table. Uh, you can't afford to lose that hand. And so that's what they've done. And, and their stock price is being punished for it. But I think, again... It reflects the character of the founder. It, it reflects in part, I think, as, as sort of years of frustration of like uh, when you were inside the company, it was, you know, when they did surveys of how people felt about different companies, all the other tech companies would get praised for being innovative and developing innovative solutions and seen as tech companies. And Facebook was seen as a media company and bad and downrated. And we used to have these sort of sessions looking at these numbers going, how do we change them? Well, they figured out how to change they figured out that. Like, change that we sure, are a tech yes. company. We're building this tech that is so cutting edge that we don't even know if anyone wants it. That's 
pretty dramatic. It is very dramatic. <laughs> yes, I sort of, I sort of like the the ethos there. There is something about it that's that's attractive. Yeah. So this this turnaround in, in the tech industry, of course, also um, has other aspects, and and we we should get to to Twitter. So Twitter mm. was acquired by Elon Musk. We had a bit of back forth about this. Yeah. Uh, it it ended up being, um, uh, I think, one of the events of the year for sure. Yeah. When we remember twenty twenty two, I think Elon Musk acquiring, taking over, and dramatically changing Twitter is going to be one of the big things that we talk about. So, so what's going on here? I mean, he essentially has fired and or lost half the company. Yeah. He has decided that he will do content moderation by tweet, more or yeah. less, seems like. And he does I don't think that he would disagree with that characterization. Right. And and he he seems to be a dead set on now picking a fight with Apple to see the latest news today. Right. So, so is this is this something that goes into the larger pattern of tech change, or is this something that is I, idiosyncratic? I, I think it's idiosyncratic in the sense that somebody had the money to do that. So, so again, your experience working at a social media company was everybody always thought that they could do it better, and they thought they thought that you were either you know, stupid or evil if you worked in the company. It's like the reason you weren't fixing something, you know, oh, verification, it's really simple. And the only reason you're not doing verification is because you're too stupid to have thought of it or or you're too wicked to, to want to do the right thing. And that's that's the perception you get continued from people in government. I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect, but it's pretty much the attitude that you would get. And people believe that there were really easy solutions to stuff yeah. and the people who worked in the company were too dumb or too, too, you know, um, uh, avaricious to actually sort of make those changes. And that's what he feels like. And so Musk is doing what I think lots of people, I've met lots of regulators who would have, who would have, you know, talked in the similar tone. I would love to take over Facebook and then I will just sort everything out. Difference being that Musk has the money to do it. Yeah. Um, but, but the impact or the effectiveness of those changes, I, I mean, from my point of view, it's, it is as, you know, as negative as, I always imagined it would be when I was arguing back to people saying, look, it's not quite that simple and law of unintended consequences. Um, social media is sort of like a waterbed. You push down on one place and another place will pop up. It's not, you know, yeah. it's, it's the thing you can't sort of isolate these things out. And that's, I think, pretty much what we're seeing. And do you think, I mean, um, if you were, if you had to place a bet, I'm going to sort of just present you with a proposition. Will Twitter be around in five years or not? Yeah. What would you bet for and why? I think the brand is strong enough for people to want to have uh, something that's branded Twitter that broadly, I mean, if you look at the the core functionality of Twitter, which is different from the other networks, again, we lump all social media together, very different. You know, uh, um, TikTok and YouTube is, is sort of about entertainment and video and all that, and it's, it's different. Facebook is very much about keeping in touch with family and friends. Instagram is probably the closest comparator to Twitter, I think, where you're you're trying to be in a community of like-minded people. That's what mm. Twitter does. Is it's, it's a tool for large groups of like-minded people to share information with each other. And then the other alternative to that is to use instant messaging services, which have got similar functionality. So I think there is scope for a Twitter-branded product that helps communities or people stay connected with each other particularly strong in areas like media, community, and so on. That's, that's who's, who's sort of tended to use Twitter. Um, is there a viable business model for that? Well, I, yeah, I think, again, the demand is there. That's useful enough for people to pay for it. Well, I mean, and Jack, one of the founders, Jack Dorsey, said that he thought it should have been a foundation and a protocol yeah. to from, you know, from the beginning and not had a business model at all, but be a lot like... You know, SMTP, the yeah. simple mail transfer protocol that people could then set up their own service, which is somewhat like what Mastodon is, is trying doing. To do. Yeah, so, and and so so Twitter, the brand might be around the, in five years. From yeah, but I think their biggest threat is probably a competitor doing what they do better. I don't think the competitor is Mastodon because again. The busy journalist just wants something that works. I, I just to, tried yeah. post dot news that Noam Barden yeah. has set up, which yeah. I thought was an intriguing uh, bid to fill that Twitter-shaped hole in the market that is slowly emerging. Yeah. Um, so, well, I mean, it's it's interesting to me because I I agree with you. I think the brand is strong enough for it to be there, and I think a lot of people have invested in their their Twitter audience, and they're reluctant to sort of let go of their thousands of followers, and it will take time to build that up somewhere else yeah. again. But but it is creaking and 
swaying. Yeah. And you start to get the feel that there might be something here that, that just doesn't work. Yeah, Musk could destroy it. A few bad decisions to destroy it. I think that one that um, we'll come on to, I'm sure one of their biggest threats is regulation. The f- just sort of underestimating again how much your business is increasingly going to be constrained and you you have to make choices differently so that's and he's flown by a couple of regulatory deadlines that have been imposed on him yeah so i think they're storing up trouble these things take time but i think we saw this week a a massive several hundred million euro fine of facebook yeah uh yeah so they and that's for things that happened several years ago so there's a lot of stored up trouble but i think yeah the thing that could be the twitter killer if i was working for a mainstream media company if i was in axel springer with a with a you know a bunch of uh, good developers. Uh, I actually think a, a classic mainstream media company that's used to kind of curating content that has credibility in a brand that will appeal to that core audience of of influencers and and media influencers in particular journalists. That if they came in the market with a really compelling proposition, that's super easy to use you know, super effective. They would want it to be clean, actually. They yeah. don't want it to be completely messy. Uh, there's something in there. And that, that, for me, could be the potential Twitter killer. Uh, but what about, if, you know, you could imagine that the advertisers just say, nope, I'm not yeah. sure about this. I'm not sure it's going to work. I can't, you know, I can't control yeah. my brand. That could happen fast, right? It could do. And then, and then the question is, does it, does it sort of go bankrupt and get... Uh, you know, reinvigorate in a different capacity. So that's what I mean. That I think there's a couple of stages. It could, it could, sort of financially become completely unviable, and then I'm not inside track on all that. But I assume there's some mechanism whereby which Musk collapses the new co, the new company that owns it. They write off all of the debts that they owe, and then somebody buys. And hopefully also all of the regulatory investigations, because uh, otherwise you wouldn't want to yeah, buy it. Yeah, they'll be on the old one. And yeah. then somebody buys it as a distressed asset and then rebuilds it. They go, yeah. Axel Springer buys Twitter. bankrupt Twitter and, and manage I don't know, somebody like, or Washington Post buys it, whatever. Yeah. But there's something, there's something in that. Again, there is a need for something. There's clearly a significant audience for a service like that. Not billions. Mm but hundreds of millions. And that audience will look for something else if they can't have that. Yes. And the main reason they wouldn't be able to have that, well, two, two reasons. One is, yes, that the, the new owner does so many terrible things that they kind of hit a regulatory wall and get shut down. Or the second, as you point out, is that they lose all their revenue streams and they literally don't have enough money to keep the lights on, uh, which is a problem in a tech company. I understand they're hiring. Would you consider an offer? Uh, there, um, me personally, um, I, I'm probably in the in the next stage. All ah, right. <laughs> I, I, I mean, genuinely, look, um, let's be re- really candid here. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, there are, you know, running social networks is really hard. It is. When people have been doing that for 10 or 15 years and have real expertise and somebody comes in and goes, oh, you guys are just idiots. You've just been getting it all wrong. You know, sling your hook. And I'm just going to do it. Like that doesn't feel like the kind of boss I would want. I, mm. I want a boss who respects what I've done and works with me in a different way. So just on that basis, like which okay, is the decision just, many people seem to have made. Yeah, and, it's just and, it's, and, yeah. it's bad behavior. I would hate to have a boss. I wouldn't want to be a boss like that. And no. I absolutely hate to have a boss like that. What's what's the point if you're trying to do your work when somebody can just come in and go, oh, no, I'm really cleverer than you, and I'm just going to throw your work out the window. It is, it is a very weird culture, isn't it? Well, well, it's going to be really interesting to track. So we have the tech industry slowdown, which is one, one part of the turnaround and uh, the, the layoffs and the sort of stock prices tanking, uh, which, is, which is a little bit reminiscent of what we saw in the beginning of the 21st century, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the 2000 to 2003 period is a good, could be a slowdown, yeah. but some of the companies that came out of that, though, uh, are still around and are some of the strongest companies uh, around, like uh, both Google, Amazon, yeah. and Apple was, of course, uh, left over from the last slump. Yeah. Are there any specific companies that you think are sort of going to emerge stronger from this crunch? Um so I, I still am I'm very bullish on Amazon, actually. I think they yeah. they really have got a long way to go, just because, again, I think they are adapting to how people have fundamentally changed the way they live uh, and, and the way that they want, you know, to, to get hold of goods. And just you just look at the sheer efficiency of a model uh, that supplies goods that way versus the model that it's 
it's in in many cases replacing substituting the taking stuff to retail stores and then moving it on so i think that they're one that even though they're I think their slump is a little lighter than the others, but I still think they have a huge, huge amount of runway. Yeah, uh, That's a really interesting one. Apple, I'm really curious about. Because um, they have that massive, massive brand loyalty that allows them to charge this big premium for their products. Yeah. And they have this ability to kind of tax effectively anybody who, who wants to sort of work through their platform. But that's coming under challenge. Yeah. And they've sort of been protected by the fact that that they're particularly in the European market, they represent a smaller premium segment. They're not the dominant by numbers player across yeah. the whole market. Um, but I'm really curious to see how they how they sort of play out over the next few years. I'm I'm thinking also of some of the reg tech sectors that have yeah. emerged now, yeah. and they they sort of they had smooth sailing. They haven't been through a crisis because they were essentially they were growing in the 2010s, and now they've hit that first crisis. So you have companies like Klarna yeah. and Stripe. Full disclosure, I worked there for a bit, yeah. and others that it will be really interesting to see how they maneuver through this. I can imagine that one of those fintechs are going to be around in 10 and 15 years and will have come out much stronger out of this crisis because before the crisis there were so many different startups and you had no consolidation in the industry and what you can imagine now is consolidation around a couple of different bets that investors want to make in the fintech space. So I think the fintech space is one where you'll see a shakeout. But then, of course, um, you know, close to the fintech space, we're getting deeper and deeper into catastrophe country. You have the crypto space oh. where we've had FTX. Yeah, yeah. So FTX is is one of the most amazing stories that I've been following lately from a tech perspective but also like all for all the psychodrama it's yeah. just been it's just been amazing and that has to be if you look back at 2022 that has to be one of the big news items very much so in the tech space right yeah i mean the emperor had no clothes it's it's just sort of it's, and no money and no money and <laughs> i think kind of what's extraordinary is is in a sense it was obvious <laughs> it like it was obvious that what they were doing is and you you talk to the you talk to the or, or sorry you read the comments that are made by the administrators gone in and the, and, and they had no saying, board meetings they, never, they they went off this this you know guy just like goes oh yeah i'll just do whatever i want and i'll go off and buy a big you know mansion uh, mansion and, and i'll do all this bahamas, stuff and bahamas and essentially you know, blow loads of money inviting all these big name people over to events and it's all bullshit and smoke and mirrors. And and then a little bit of you is kind of going, but no, surely, surely it can't be that much bullshit. And it is. And it's, sort of, it's surprising <laughs> yes. in the fact that yes. it's absolutely validating all of those kind of assumptions you made about it. You know, and, and almost he's playing, it's really, the psychodrama is fascinating. It's like, oh, you're just prejudiced to get against guys who are cool and with it. In the, you know, yeah. I'm just wearing my shorts and T-shirt and, and the only reason you're not taking me seriously is I don't look like a banker. It's like, no, because you're an idiot. Yes. <laughs> not an idiot, but you're a crook. You know? you're a crook. <laughs> and you're not doing, and there are certain things you need to do when you look after people's money and you don't care about any of those. Or when you just run a company. I mean, yeah. there's basic fiduciary duties you have if you're running a company. Yeah. I, think, I think one of the things that stands out with the FTX story is that there were similar stories back in the 2000s, right? About mm. internet companies that had grown very fast and they had a, you know absolutely no substance but tons of venture capital had gone into them That's in right. different ways so it's a sign of overheating it's it's history doesn't repeat but it rhymes and ftx yeah. is one of the things that rhymes with all of those dot coms that we used to talk about yeah. so in a sense the dot coms cast a long shadow all the way into the crypto industry right. do you think the crypto industry is going it's it gone after 2022 uh, i don't know so, so you're right so i think <clears throat> i think they've been playing getting investment based on fomo the fear of missing out haven't they and it's that, like the dot coms did, right? Yeah, yeah. What is exactly the same process? Like everybody else is going to make money, and if you don't get on this bandwagon, you're going to look like an idiot. And mm-hmm. of course, the people who got on first do make money. Mm-hmm. The people who get on that's later, the of, that's the nature of pyramid. Uh, it's nature, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. They, they've lost it, and, and that. So, I think so. Crypto is really interesting. I'm actually spending time learning <laughs> more yeah, about yeah. it and how it works. I think the. A lot of the models that have been set up are are, are pyramid schemes, effectively. They're just <clears throat> persuading people to put money in on the promise of making money, but it's just impossible for everyone to make money. 
uh, in one of these schemes, and a lot of them really are smoke and mirrors. There's no substance there. Yeah. At the same time, I'm gaining a little bit more respect for the technology itself, that there is a, there's an interesting new way of you know, dealing with data, processing data that has interesting uh, properties. And authenticating it. And, authentic, and yeah. capturing And this sort of more more the blockchain than the, exactly. the crypto. Yeah, the, and it's not to be used for everything again. It's not a quick fix for everything. So I think there's something that comes out of that. And, and I actually think from a currency point of view that the, the lesson is, look, um, uh, governments are trying to develop their own uh, digital currencies. And I actually think that that's almost the marriage that may make all this work. Yeah. So it's, it has some of the properties of a digital currency, but it, it's got the backing of a government. Central bank digital currency, yeah. CBDCs, as we affectionately call them. Yes. Yeah, and that's, I yeah. think that's something that could come out of it. And if, if you had a choice as a consumer and, you, and you're looking at your friends who invested in one of, you know, there's the dude with the shorts and, and living in a nice house who's, who's selling you, you know, promising the earth, or there's a digital currency that's issued by Boring Bank, um, yeah, but that one's not going bankrupt. I, I think I think it's going to compete. And, quite and, well. in, and it's actually a representation of how a lot of value has been stored historically. The CBDCs are interesting because they challenge uh, also the existing banking systems. Yeah. So if you imagine that you had a central bank that issued its own currency and offered, say, an interest on that currency, then why would you put it in a regular bank? Yeah, because you're, I mean, the central bank is a lender of last resort and if they offer you an account with interest why should you go anywhere else yeah. like, so they could really have a disruptive effect on the existing banking ecosystem but more than anything they also um, become an instant policy instrument if you want them to there's this notion of a Keynesian central digital uh, the central bank digital currency where where you could sort of have a wallet that the state controls and and you know if if, if times are looking bad yeah. you just you know you just increase the amount in the wallet a little bit but if it's overheating you instead yeah. of setting the interest which is a really blunt instrument as we have seen now that people are increasing yeah. interest you would just say you have a little less money now yeah because inflation is not looking good and and then you know you would have to contract because you had, had no control of your assets yeah. it's actually been discussed as a proper model which i think is quite fascinating and as you, as you describe it i can see the the sort of crypto libertarians go, oh my god this that's the worst thing I've <laughs> kind of but again i think it's a really interesting example where that rhetoric you know we must have cryptocurrency to escape the dead hand of government and and the evil banking and all of that i'm not sure that's really aligned with where most people are and also is that not exactly what we said about the internet yeah, yeah and way back see, in exactly. the 1994 you know early barlow uh, that we talked about before the dead hand of government or you know as he would say you weary giants, giants of, of flesh and, and steel, steel. Exactly. right and, and silicon valley people keep I, I, sorry, we generalize, generalize. Sorry, we generalize yes. Yes. but no there's a there is a, Some te a tech utopian people, yes. view which continually kind of goes what everybody wants is to break away from from this dead hand of government thing and so all of these technologies that offer a way out are better but those technologies then put you in the hands of people like the guy who set up ftx because there's, yeah. there's somebody in charge and actually i think yeah, a significant proportion of the population would say, look, give them, give them a choice. I, I actually am okay with government. I'm okay with the Keynesian intervention you described because I'm a, a, a communitarian. I believe yeah. in my community, my, you know, my country. And ultimately, I will have as much money in my wallet as I could possibly need. And yeah. if it's a little bit less one week, then you know maybe I buy fewer clothes or I eat at home. And if it's a little bit more next week, then you know I'm happy to grease the wheels of commerce and go out and have a burger. And yeah. so there, there is something about that that's kind of an interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not entirely happy with it. I'm no. not promoting it, but but I can see that taking off in some context. But not everybody's aspiration is to be filthy rich. No. <laughs> and and this sort of whole billionaire-obsessed mindset, everyone can be a billionaire. Well, they can't. Yeah. And the billionaires, I'm now going to sound like a raving socialist, but <laughs> if the billionaires are billionaires, that money came from somewhere. Yes. Uh, and with, with the crypto, you see it very directly. You know, 100,000 or a million ordinary people have put their hands in their pockets 
plus some VC firms, but they're the VC firms are gambling with other people's money as well. So, but they put their hands in their pockets. They've all put in a thousand into this crypto exchange or whatever it is, yeah. and they've all lost it. And it's it's tragic. It really is yeah. in many ways. I agree with that. And I think in terms of catastrophes, as we look through sort of what the theme of the year is, I think one theme of the year certainly is that twenty twenty two was the year of of big, small, and different catastrophes. Yeah. The war being the most tragic and obvious one, but then looking at the tech slowdown, that's a catastrophe in a slower sense, a sort of turning around, and then going to the edges of tech and looking at what happens with crypto, which is sort of a replay of the dot-com boom, hmm. and then FTX. And then on top of that, the weirdness of Twitter and what's going to yeah. happen with it. I, I just find one of those things that, that is, it, it, is, it, it certainly beats Netflix. I'm sort yeah. of following it intensely. I, it's I, really I, fascinating. I tune out, the twi- tune out the Twitter for a very simple reason, which is that I, I hate billionaires living in my head. I really, uh, really uh, dislike that. Trump was a billionaire who lived in my head for years. And I was so relieved when, when he became... Like a not obsolete, obsolete, yes. and I and I was following it on, on Twitter. Now I just stopped looking at it because I don't I, I don't want my mood to be determined by the decision of this guy who happens to have a lot of money. Anyway, that's a very personal. I, I don't. Think, I mean, I don't think my mood, but it's a good, it's a good point. I like yeah. That. So so um, so let's bracket. Uh, so our first candidate for a moniker for the year was twenty twenty two was a year of catastrophes. Yeah. That's is rather doomy and gloomy. Let's let's go to the heart of tech policy. Uh, I would propose you another moniker, which would be twenty twenty two was the year when tech finally became a proper regulated industry. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think so. So I think yeah, on two, two fronts. One is we're starting to see the the regulation that was passed a couple of years ago, a few years ago, like the general data protection regulation in Europe bite. And there's there's cases that have been trundling through that are sort of now having real impact. So I think there's some of that. But more significantly, I think, it is that the the broad uh, brush kind of internet regulation that is targeted at companies for what they do, the services they offer, that tries to bring government into or gives government a role in telling online services how they have to operate more broadly beyond just how they manage personal data, those regulations are now happening. And you would, uh, I mean, there are many different examples in the UK, you Mm. have the online uh, safety act and European Union, you have the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. But what about the US? Is tech a regulated industry in the US as well? It's not in the same way, and I still think that's a long way off. So yes, yeah, so, so the I mean, there've been a, a few bits and pieces around the world. So Australia, Singapore, other countries have had bits of regulation. The really big ones this year are the Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act, where the slow and sclerotic European Union actually managed to beat nimble United Kingdom uh, out of the traps by getting theirs on first, because the United Kingdom's bill was somewhat slowed down by. If you're if you're Competing on the dimension of making regulation, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should, probably shouldn't just no, no, pick no. a fight with the European Union. If that's yeah, yeah. what you're doing. Well, no, no, that's the UK. So it's part of the UK <laughs> yeah. sort of whole uh, yeah, yeah, logic yeah. these days. But the UK's one was disrupted by by the fact that we keep changing government. I think yeah, we, you had a lot of governments. A lot yes. of governments, yes. yeah. yeah. And, uh, um, you know, the big... Tri- oh, we'll share the trivia question that is going to be the UK trivia question in three or four years is, who was Prime Minister when the Queen died? Oh God! Everyone yes. will either say Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak. Exactly. There's another one in between. It just ah, happened to that's sneak the future trivia. Yeah, it's the future trivia yeah, shared yeah. here. Come back to this episode. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know, so so the UK is catching up, and the UK just now has actually reintroduced its bill and is hoping to get it on next year. But there is no way that this kind of legislation could ever you know be created in the united states because the in the united states as we know the first amendment says congress shall not uh, regulate in this way so i think the the there's no chance of a, a, a online safety bill type law in the united states but there are other mechanisms that can be used and in fact actually in the latest incarnation of the online safety bill some of what they're saying is is consistent with how us regulators already work so they're really focused now on saying um, tech companies must abide by their terms of service. So for you know, if they say they're going to take content down, they must take it down. If they say they're going to leave it up, they must leave it up. Um, so they're dealing with a whole swathe of content by saying, look, the, the regulator, all they're going to do is make sure that the company abided by its own terms of service. And of course, the Federal Trade Commission in the US 
already has comparable powers. Yes. Uh, you know, it's all about enforcing contracts and, and dealing with unfair and deceptive practices. If you said you were going to do something and you didn't do it, it's potentially unfair and deceptive. So I think the US, between the FTC and their competition authority, will be able to... I think they're making some changes to competition law as well, which will give them more, more intervention powers. I think they'll push that way rather than creating a bill that looks like the Online Safety Bill or the Digital Services Act. And you see, I think also that uh, a viable scenario is that they simply get rid of the CDA 230 and then leave it to litigation. And then litigation will bring similar standards around in uh, the U.S. context. And it's interesting because I do think that tech is regulated in the U.S. as well. But we seem to always be staring at the federal level. Yeah. And there's a lot happening at state, state levels. Exactly. And some state legislations have a normative effect across the entire yeah. United States. So the California uh, pollution exactly. standards is the most well-known example that's been normative across the entire um, yeah. state, uh, United States. And I think that the Californian privacy laws are now uh, emerging as similar yeah. examples that actually regulate tech yeah. across the United States, but from, from a sort of state vantage point, yeah, if you right. And from the other direction, I think Florida and Texas have been looking at these sort of um, must-carry right-wing people yeah. <laughs> type laws that they, you know, coming from their political direction. So you're right, there's there's quite a bit of state intervention that's potential, although some of that may then end up getting struck down, but there, there definitely is an interventionist mood at state level. And, and then directions. you have advertiser pressure and yeah. you have possible litigation. And I think you end up in a situation where you're regulated, but with slightly different instruments than you would be in the European Union. So so it is, it is I think you can still sort of make the argument for 2022, the year the tech industry uh, finally became a fully regulated yeah. industry. And of course, you're not prohibited from... Uh, as a platform from acting as though you were regulated in the United States. So again, we saw this with the general data protection regulation that a lot of tech companies, it was easier to reconfigure their services. So they effectively did GDPR compliance everywhere, including the US, even yes. though they weren't forced to. We might see something similar developing here that, look, if, if a tech company has had to put in place you know, there are things in the European law that say things like you must have an appeal mechanism and you must uh, uh, sort of deal, process complaints about content in a certain way. Well, if you've built that for all of Europe and all of the United Kingdom and potentially Australia and Canada and Singapore and potentially India, you know, um, if Brazil joins in, like by the time you've got to that, then, you know, it may just become the global norm anyway. So that's how you will deal with content issues in the United States, even though Congress isn't under threat of law forcing you to do it, it just becomes like the, the rational thing to do. Yes, I think that's right. And so, so what other things, if you look at 2022 as the mm. year of the regulated tech industry, I think one of the other things I would point to is that we've seen an enormous build out of compliance capability in the tech companies. So 2022 is not just a year that the tech industry is regulated. That's how we usually describe it. Yeah. It's the year that tech industry starts to comply. That's and right. compliance is going to be a huge piece of how these companies work in the future. Yeah, I, I think I said it before, massive growth industry, I think, in compliance, because yeah. it has shifted again. Candidate, when we were sort of hired as policy people back in the day, you, ha you had a whole bunch of engineers who were focused on building stuff. And your job as a policy person was just like, keep all that regulation away from us. That used to be the attitude. Yes. You didn't need compliance teams because... Because the, the point was that there wasn't much around to comply with. And, and no regulator would turn up on your doorstep and ask, how are you actually complying with, you know, how are you exercising your duty? Except right? in France, yeah, yeah. Except in France. <laughs> but they, they sort of, that's where they live on your doorstep. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, no. So they, we love the French. We love the French, yes, yes. yes. Um, but they, they would, uh, yeah, they would generally, you were, you were sort of left, well, they would make representations, but, it, but they knew they didn't have really robust legal powers yeah. in most cases. So they would sort of, you know, be a little bit at arm's length. They wouldn't come piling in. Now they've got those robust legal powers. You know that they're going to be asking you for stuff every day. You're going to get letters from regulators saying, I demand these things. Not I request, but I demand these things. And once you start getting that, you have to have a compliance department. You can't send your policy person out to explain to the regulator why they don't really want that thing which is where we used to be now it's like no i want i demand this thing i have a legal right to insist that you give it to me and now you're going to have to hire a bunch of people i think that changes the dynamic really dramatically uh, and again for people in the in policy world i think it actually moves them 
to to where I think core policy people should be, which is focused on future regulation, not complying with existing regulation. Right. We would get involved a lot in compliance where you're trying to, you know, sort of work with with uh, politicians to sort of not. Not, not be too aggressive towards you. Well, now, now it's all going to be set out and now you're going to have a legally-led compliance department and I think probably more separation from the policy team. So and another, so I want to tie this discussion back to the discussion we had mm. about the tech industry slowdown because when we talked about the dot-com industry in the early 2000s and the slowdown we had then, we saw a rather fast growth out of that slowdown and new consumer tech companies came in to the fore and, you know, uh, and, and grew very fast and, and sort of it was a, a short... Um, hiatus in, in the growth curve. But now we're moving into a tech slowdown and regulation at the same time. So what does this mean for future tech growth? Have we now moved into a slower growth paradigm where, where tech industry is, is not, we're not going to see sort of the same recuperation that we saw in the 2000s, 2003, 4, 5, and then on. But we're going to sort of see the industry mature, stabilize in a new equilibrium, at a slightly slower growth pace where profit margins are eaten up by compliance and you know there is going to be the occasional fine etc etc which means that that you're now in this state where where you're not going to see enormous growth in at least the first generation consumer tech sector anymore yeah i mean i think that could be right so there are some critical decisions they have to make the regulators around the on-ramp so the the legislation legislative models we're seeing generally have more onerous requirements for bigger companies and less onerous ones for smaller ones. But what that delta is, is not typically set out in the legislation. We're going to get guidance later that says, look, how do we define big and small? And how do we say, how do we sort of define what each each stage of company has to do? Uh, but certainly it's going to be more than today. <laughs> That's certain. So the smallest company is still going to have to do something tomorrow that they probably didn't have to do yesterday and that they and that, didn't have to do back in the early 2000s exactly and so that is likely one level to kind of slow innovation uh it means they've got to be careful they've got to uh they can't cut corners perhaps in a way that was was possible previously and then but then the question is look how exactly how onerous and then as they sort of grow, go through the phases are the burdens still within their capacity or other phases where they where they kind of go, oh, I don't really want to get any bigger because yeah. <laughs> it's going to cost me a fortune. I've got to implement all of this stuff. You Which know. you see in, in, for example, the financial industry. So small banks don't want to necessarily become big banks. Or yeah. you can see it in the telco industry because you don't want to move into a place where you have universal service obligations, etc. Exactly. So that sort of tiered is not unique, that sort of tiered model. And so getting that right, because this is novel, I think is going to be a key part. Of the, and the policymakers would say, "Look, no, 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 we don't want to stop innovation," um, and so they'll they'll say that that's not their intent, uh, and certainly not to create sort of regulatory wall gardens for the biggest players. Um, but that there's always a risk with this kind of regulation, and and you only know whether or not it happened after the event when you go back and look at it and say you know what what was the response of the market but what we can say is that this is certainly a slightly different um, uh, recovery period than the one after the dot-com boom and bust because it's going to be a recovery period in a fully regulated environment which is going to be different right it's going to be different and i think the other thing that's critical is look each generation of tech builds on the previous generation we talked about this before you know the amount of commoditized technology there is now open source software stacks you know, cloud computing services and things like that mean that that the barriers to entry, I think even though if the regulatory ones have gone up, the technical ones are actually still coming down. Yeah. And it and it's easier than ever before to sort of go out there, pull all the components together. AI is the other one, isn't it? Now we, yeah, yeah. we can all go and play with these amazingly powerful AI engines that would just have been inconceivable 10 or 15 years ago. Now look, people are going to build incredibly innovative services grabbing a little bit of you know amazon web service and a little bit of somebody else's ai and a little masses of open source software stacks and so even though and they're going to build them with the ai because they're going to ask yeah. the ai to write the code yeah so we have a more generative oh i tried that the other day getting python code oh, there you go. smtp server in fact anyway, so, so we have a more generative environment i think in terms of the technology yeah 
uh, and you'll still then. I wonder there might be an AI for compliance with the Online Safety Bill and Digital Services Act. Oh, totally. No, I, I actually think that that is something write, that will happen. Write me a, a DSA compliant set of terms of service. It's an absolutely yeah. um, standard AI problem, isn't it? You go and you have a source uh, a book of all the different terms of service of all the other services. You plug in the legislation, off you go. And there's already legal AI is coming. So yeah. I think that could certainly be a, a growth market, compl- yeah. AI compliance. And generally yeah. compliance as a service. Because I think that one of the things that you will notice if you're a really large company is that suddenly you have all of this money invested in moderation. And what you can do if you want to is to say, okay, I can moderate your stuff too if you want me to. And I'll just put this in a separate company and it will be a moderating company. And you will suddenly have a moderating industry because that's how regulated industries usually evolve. That's right. Because it's better for compliance point of view because you're not the, the, the specialist moderating company one of their huge specialism is compliance and they have to get the compliance right for all of their customers or they're out of business. Yeah. Whereas you as a smaller company trying to get your compliance right is is too big an ask. So you're right, there's all sort of outsource it all, yeah. uh, put all the components together. Which the legislation is not built for because the legislation still addresses the individual companies. Yeah, so you can exactly. imagine how that will sort of create tensions in the existing framework. Yeah. So we have we have two monikers. 2022 yeah. was the year of catastrophe. 2022 was the year that the tech industry finally really fully became a regulated industry. Yeah. Um, what, what are we missing? What are the things that we should have looked at in 2022 yeah. that we... That we paid too little attention to, Sorry. or it's just scooted by. Yeah. So, so one um, development which I've been trying to get my head around, and, I'm, and apologies to anyone who is a serious blockchain expert for anything that I mangle, but I was fascinated by the change that took place with Ethereum blockchain, mm. which moved from what they uh, call proof of work to proof of stake. I think is the yes. way they describe it. But essentially, my shorthand version is: look to to. Uh, the, the critical thing with the blockchain is you've got to create some kind of significant barrier to people coming in and and for malicious or, or whatever reasons, uh, putting transactions into the blockchain that are wrong. So you've got to make sure that when a transaction gets recorded, it is a true transaction and that the whole community in the blockchain has agreed that that transaction is valid. And the Bitcoin way of doing that is to make you expend lots and lots of energy. <laughs> and, and you've got to invest. You need people to be invested in those being, you know, uh, um, um, uh, in making the proofs. Yes. And the, the Bitcoin one was to burn lots of energy, do lots of computing. And that's how you validate things. And Ethereum, as I understand it, is switched to saying no proof of stake. You've got to invest, I think it's $20,000 in, uh, in the currency, in Ether, the currency. And once you've done that, you become a validator. And so it's a very different model. And it doesn't require lots and lots of energy to be expended. And it allows people who hold some of the currency to pool it into these $20,000 pools. And they get something that looks like an interest rate out of it. So so if, if Bitcoin was like burn lots and lots of energy and occasionally you get lucky and hit the jackpot and get loads of money, it, it, the Ethereum model now seems to be, well, we found a way where we're trusting you if you're prepared to put skin in the game. Yeah. And in return for that, it's not going to be great big sort of lumpy one-off sums of money. It's like a consistent income stream that you get for it. And that feels to me a lot closer to kind of classic financial models. And that's where I start to, even maybe as a bit of a crypto skeptic, start to say, well, this looks really quite interesting, potentially very safe and stable. Uh, for people to use, plus it doesn't destroy the planet, which, which is which is good. Yeah, big button. Yes, and I think mean, it's interesting because it also seems to suggest that your proof of stake is is a proof of commitment to the network yeah. as a whole, which means that you can then imagine that the people who have a proof of stake might invest also in innovation on top of the system, and think about how it can be used for other things, and so it's no longer that rather um, distant relation you have with cash, <laughs> which yes. is sort of this is this is money I invest. Etc. But suddenly, it's an investment in the model rather than in the token, in a sense. Exactly, it feels long. It feels longer term, and you're right that they're they're building something, uh, and they're having to. Again, people will game everything, but they're having to 
to pony up, and they all have an incentive in preventing the people who who are gaming yeah. it because they all lose. Yeah, uh, and so it's more of a there. project than a than yeah. a currency. Than a gamble, sense. it feels less yeah, gambling. Less than a gamble. I, yeah. I like that project gamble. No, that's yeah. a very yeah. good. I like that. And what's the, what's the thing you've got on your mind that we haven't paid enough attention to? Well, I actually think we're paying a ton of attention to AI. Of course, AI mm. is super hot, and a lot of people are are thinking about you know what can we do with these large models? How can we think about large language models? And there's been an enormous amount of of attention paid to text-to-image generators where you can, you know, give me a picture of Winnie the Pooh flying through space on a rocket and yeah. people get those and they're, they're wonderful. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're probably not, still not paying enough attention to the growth of uh, capabilities in, in AI and what they're able to do and, and what they're able to do with two things only, with uh, scale data and scale compute. Mm. And there's something about that that suggests that the problem um, could have been easier than we thought. And a lot of AI uh, people will say this, you, you know, go, go look and any expert, they will say that they're, they're sort of surprised by the amount of stuff that you've been able to accomplish with enough data and enough compute and then just training these models. And there's something about that because we, we, we like to believe that we ourselves are extraordinarily complicated mm. and often course human intelligence has to be this multi-modular multi-aspect super complex system that is hard to replicate but maybe 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 that's not true maybe you can get to you almost human level uh, intelligence uh, through these fairly simple models if you just have enough compute and enough data and that's a lot of people are thinking and placing bets along those lines now which i think is super interesting because it's one of the one of the sort of last uh, last points in a long evolution of ai that has been uh, about the the sort of the the reduction of our ego uh, yeah. where we're like oh of course it can't play chess oh darn uh, oh of course it can't play go oh darn oh of course it can't play jeopardy oh oh darn yeah, of yeah. course it can't paint the picture oh oh, oh. <laughs> and so it goes on to that last point where maybe it turns out that our own intelligence is describable by but i don't yeah. think it's necessarily explained by or identical identical to describable by and replicatable um by a system that just does this predicts what the next word is given the word that you gave it wow and that's that's a bit of a like um it's it's the undervaluing there i think is yeah. is the impact or effect it can have on our self-image and and to a certain extent our intellectual self-respect which i by the way think would be very healthy yeah. because we overestimate our intellect <laughs> yeah particularly some people who take over internet companies but the um <laughs> the, the yeah so that's a suggestion that ai the foundations of ai are moore's law which has meant that compute has got cheaper over time and social media yeah which has generated the vast vast data sets uh, that are often used uh, for yeah. AI. So those are two and now, sort of foundational And now problems. you, and uh, this is a good one. Now the, the public debate has turned to whether or not there will still be enough data because we need more data all the time. So we might end up uh, having produced too little data. So go right. off to those social media sites, people, and produce more data. To do stuff, make yeah. stuff, say make stuff, stuff, write stuff. <laughs> exactly. In By every sensors. Yes. Track your exercise. Yes. No, I think I think that's that's the one I would pick. Mm. So so moving back then into a few predictions for 2023. Yeah. Um, what are the things that you think we should expect out of 2023 just out of the top of our head? Because 2023 is going to be in many senses a continuation of what we've seen. The regulation is going to land. You have things coming into force. You will have regulators beefing up there. There will be lots of hiring in the regulator sector, which, by the way, might actually be really interesting because you could get tech competence into the regulator sector which would be yeah. even more tech competent there are regulators that are tech competent but even more and and you'll see sort of a continuation of this uh, fortunately it's likely that the war is still going to be around the economic slump doesn't seem to be gone so 2023 in many years when you look at it looks like a, a sort of uh, um, almost like an echo of 2022 yeah. slightly sadder slightly more depressing but are there any other things around 2023 that you think that could be interesting to predict I mean, I think we will see an extension of um, countries uh, wanting to uh, potentially cut off services that are not conformant with what their expectations are. So that's quite novel. Yeah. I and mean, we've done it with some of the media outlets this year. But next year, potentially, uh, as the regulation comes into force, look, ultimately, if, if somebody says, look, I'm not going to play with a new regulation in the EU or the UK, they have to cut them off. 
and that's that's quite a big step actually yes uh for for uh you know western democracies in particular to kind of take so i think that's going to be an interesting thing that will play out through the year uh um i think we're probably going to see a little bit of a shadow over the market as a whole where people try and digest what this new regulatory world looks like yeah and people are going to be you know more cautious and more careful until they see the whites of their eyes I'm really curious. I'm not a you know big expert on the VC industry, but I'm really curious about the fallout of all the crypto investments on yeah. venture capital, and that, how that's going to play. Because they went in, they did the FOMO thing, and dived in on all these companies, and they were bad bets. And do, do they, you know, do people get fired from those companies? Do people uh, seem to survive the dot com boom. So yeah. I, I suspect that they will just say, well, we expected to lose some of this money and then raise a new fund and move on. Move on, maybe, yeah. yeah. yeah but that's sort of curious. Um, I, I think we'll see a lot more um, uh, interest. Actually, I think the, the fintech thing is we're at the, only at the start of it in terms of their regulatory curve. So... Yeah. So I think that there are, you know, the individual consumers who have lost money are going to be banging on the doors of the politicians. And I think that pressure is starting to build. So in the same way that pressure built over social media over the years, I hate all this content, regulate, regulate. And that happened because there were real people who had suffered. And now there are real people suffering financial losses through crypto. So they're going to be banging on the doors. So they're going to create that pressure through 2023. Um, and then I think you mentioned earlier some market consolidation. It seems yeah. to me that's what happens when you get a downturn. Yeah. I don't know if any of the big, bigger, I mean, the second tier, not the t- very top tier, but maybe some of the second tier companies are going to end up consolidating with each other or getting bought or out. Or your media bigger. scenario where m- yeah. large media houses buy new media companies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's generally been a disaster, but in this case it might. If they, did, they, could, they could get it right, um, but because uh, I think they've matured as well. Um, so I think, but there's certainly some form of consolidation. It feels like at the end of next year, uh, it's certainly in the middle tier companies, there aren't going to be as many as there were before. Although curiously, because of the advancing competition regulation, the biggest companies will be prohibited from buying them. So it's not going to be Alphabet or Meta, anybody who buys these companies. But there may be other, there may be mergers, there may be other structures that, that take place. But it does feel like there should be some kind of consolidation. Yeah. And and one of the things that you mentioned before that I thought was interesting was that we, we seem to have, uh, there's one debate that we potentially could be leaving behind, and that's the debate about elections and misinformation. Mm. And so 2023 is not a big election year because we just had the midterms. But if you sort of project a little bit further into 2024 and the next presidential election in the US, and I think it's also parliamentary elections in the European yeah. Union, if I remember correctly, what, what role do you think that, because we talked so much about misinformation, information propaganda disinformation etc do you think we'll have the same discussions or are we, uh, are we looking at the elections we had for example yeah i mean so it's an important theme still so i don't want to, to minimize it but it is interesting that people are not i think now saying look it was the online activity that swung the election they're actually going back to saying it's about the quality of the politicians and the candidates and the campaigns they ran it's not to mean it's gone away completely, but I, th- I think we... It's was not, that because it was a democratic win, do you think? It's, it's partly who wins, because I think it was the shock of the upsets. And the, in the shock of the upsets, you had to find a rationale. So interestingly, Georgia Maloney won in Italy this year. I think um, Sweden swung to the right, I think, yes. in the elections. And people are not saying now, like three or four years ago, people would have tended to go, the only reason these people, typically from the right, won was because of social media. Yeah. Because the parties were new, the social media was new. But that wasn't the, you're the shock right, that of the wasn't new. The case. Yeah, and yeah. now they're not doing that. They're saying that they won because people are upset about immigration or whatever. They're seeing it for what it is, which is politics. Yeah. That's misinformation, you know, a cloud around it. But they're not saying the integrity of the result depended on the misinformation. And the misinformation battle is now more along classic, you know, sort of uh, international lines that yeah. we're worried about. Russian misinformation being blasted in, uh, you know, cross-border, it's that sort of thing. But I think we say it's the shock of the new yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that happened around Brexit and the Trump elections that meant that we suddenly got into this mode of saying those results would never have happened if it were not for yes. online. And now we're saying we don't like some of the online stuff, but we're not saying that, that that's the... We're not saying that it's the sole cause of the yeah. electoral outcome. Yeah, right? because, no. because we've sort of become habituated. We now understand that 
yeah, these parties are, have got genuine support and they're not going anywhere. Yeah. It's not like people were conned into voting for them. You know, uh, they they actually do support them, which is a hard a hard truth, if it, if that's not your political persuasion to accept, yeah. but it is a truth. I'm I'm optimistic about 2023 uh, across a couple of the mm. mostly because I have the mind of a golden retriever, but yeah. I, I think there's some things that would be Fetch. really interesting to to to, 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 to uh, yeah. track. One of them is going to be. Um, health tech yes. because I think that that's ripe for a series of breakthroughs right where mm. I think that finally we might be able to strike a balance between our legitimate concern around health data and the utility and benefits that you could get out of that health data if you use it in the right way and so I'm hoping that we'll see more new innovative health tech companies yeah. come along in 2023. Yeah I mean we've got amazing tech now it's just not integrated <laughs> into yeah. into typically state-run or or large organization-run systems. So you're right because we all walk around now with amazing health monitoring devices. Yeah, you can go and get your you know blood pressure monitoring things you like that. Sequence your genome. You can you, do it's all, just all of this yeah. stuff, and it's not you know it's just not integrated. And we haven't we haven't got models of care that we haven't figured out. You know, you're in a category where could you just please do your blood pressure once a week and then have your phone send it over. And 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 then that will allow the doctors to focus on the people who've got you know the the greatest needs rather than the ones who who necessarily are knocking on the door all the time. So that those kind of transitions could happen today. But yeah. it doesn't need new tech. It needs new models of care, and and a little bit of integration work. I think that's right. And the the other dimension that I'm I'm more and more optimistic about is actually programming becoming more uh, coding becoming more accessible to people generally partially because of the new ai tools that help you code uh, partly also because coding has come to a place where you can start to describe what it is you want to do the problem you want to solve and then the tool the you know the ide you're working in can help you craft that and so i'm i'm hoping that that will uh, allow people to to tinker and experiment more with technology that's something i would like that's a good one somebody's grappling with python at the moment i'm like i I have a few tasks i'm trying to do and at one level i kind of love it when i finally cracked it but another level it's like why did you make this language so complicated and and python's an easy language it's not c plus plus but even so it's like you you know there there are plain language ways of doing these things it's sort of uh, i think we're moving there you know i think there will be tools released that will allow kids to tinker with this stuff and as they do it's not because i want them to become coders but i want them to be able to think computationally to understand what kinds of problems can you actually solve with a computer what kind of problems can you not solve with a computer so i think that's going to be interesting downturns and slumps are also usually quite good for arts exactly so i'm hoping that we'll see some amazing movies and some great books come out in 2023 that might actually uh incorporate but not be written by uh, ai so i've seen a couple of studies now where where folks have um written together with sort of use these tools or where they've painted things where the AI has become like a brush and and the the sort of joint creativity of giving people these stronger tools I think is fascinating. We've seen for the last 10 years in, in the uh, composition of music where pe- where it's really become a household thing because you can log into Logic Pro or mm. recent Propellerhead and suddenly you can even make your own music in a couple of hours and it's just become accessible to people, this kind of creativity. And I think that's something that if it continues is going to be a great way of making creativity accessible to people as well. I like all this positivity. Should we, we end, end on the happy positive This is a happy positive note. note. Yes, oh. I think we should. So 2023 is going to be uh, a challenging year for sure, but it's also going to be a year that I'm sure will surprise us. Mm. Any last words from your side? Uh, no, just uh, I hope everyone has a lovely, lovely winter break or, whatever, or summer break if they live in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, wherever they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, a, a, a needed break in the and we'll get back at it in 2023. Absolutely. And you can find this episode on your website. At www.regulate.tech. Thank you for listening and thank you for being with us in 2022.